There was only one catch, and that was Catch-22, which specified that a concern for one's safety in the face of dangers that were real and immediate was the process of a rational mind. Orr was crazy and could be grounded. All he had to do was ask, and as soon as he did, he would no longer be crazy and would have to fly to more missions. Orr would be crazy to fly more missions and sane if he didn't, but if he was sane, he had to fly them. If he flew them, he was crazy and didn't have to, but if he didn't want to, he was sane and had to. Yasarian was moved very deeply by the absolute simplicity of this clause of Catch-22 and let out a respectful whistle. Welcome to Redeeming Reads, a podcast where we interpret classic novels in light of the gospel. I'm Dylan. And I'm Taylor. And tonight we're going to be discussing Joseph Heller's Catch-22, a World War II novel um, that might be more of an anti-war novel. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, I think that's accurate. What are you drinking tonight? So I'm drinking, um, you know, Old Faithful Bolt Coffee (laughs) based out of Providence. Um, It's their Seven Hills Espresso Blend. Um, It's really good. I've had it before. I think I've even had it on the podcast before. And I only remember that because the notes that they give, they say that it's both fruity and structured, Mm. um, which is really means nothing. Yeah. What does structured mean? I don't know, but it, I mean, I I do think it's fruity. It has that kind of like, maybe it's acidity or something to it that is, it's just like a really juicy, it has like a juicy kind of punch to it. I got you. Okay. If you know what but, I mean. But is, is structured referring to mouthfeel or could, an actual flavor profile? It could be. Although I wonder if it has to do with like if you were going to actually make espresso with it, you know? Mm, I see. Which I did not do. Yeah. Do you have the capability to make espresso at home? No. Okay. I didn't know if you had a small machine or something. My wife used to have uh, an espresso machine, like an actual like espresso machine, but it was like a fairly – like low-end one that most like espresso aficionados probably wouldn't really consider <laughs> is like a real espresso yeah. machine yeah it doesn't wouldn't pull good good um shots yeah espresso. but yeah. i mean whereas I, and i say that as someone who honestly i i'm not an espresso guy so i don't even know like it's it's probably like i would think it's good because <laughs> i don't uh i just don't really venture into the espresso region of coffee um i don't really drink latte i i wouldn't enjoy a latte i wouldn't i might enjoy like an espresso shot but i would just prefer to drink pour over drip coffee yeah i'm with you there i actually there's only one espresso drink that i enjoy and it's not a latte but it's a cortado um which is basically like baby latte but with less milk like less milk okay it's it's like a espresso shot if you want the flavor of an espresso shot but it has the uh, foamed milk on it, which is really good because it cuts into the the bitterness of the espresso a little bit. I'm not a huge fan of just the straight. It could really kick you in the in the taste buds. So I prefer to to just have a little bit of something in there to to dumb it down a little bit. But that's that's a rare occurrence for me. Yeah. Okay. Cool. What yeah. do you have tonight? I have an Ethiopian Sadama uh, mm. from Colonial Coffee Roasters, the same batch that I've been um, exploring pretty good it doesn't have tasting notes on the bag Um, yeah is it a medium roast yeah so it's it's sort of a slightly more roasted than i would typically have so i think the fruitiness has gone away just slightly 
Um, it's not as bright as a lighter roasted Ethiopian would be, but it's actually really enjoyable. And the more I have it, the more I'm, I'm just enjoying it for what it is. And it's a little bit more caramelly, you know, warmer notes than, than typical, but it's, it's good. Yeah. You know, I hear what you're saying. Recently, I have come to the realization that a lot of these single origins are really good and they have unique flavors, but it's, I don't know if it's always something I'd want to drink on the daily. Like for me, I drink coffee every day. And so, you know, making this really, really type of like unique (laughs) single origin light roast is like fascinating and, and tastes like interesting, but not necessarily is it something that I would want to have as my like daily driver for coffee. And I realized that that's the reason for blends like coffee blends mm, yeah. <laughs> i've become so unbalanced in trying to <laughs> find the like niche coffee taste or whatever that i've totally neglected like duh like that's what that's what blends are for like house blends at you know some coffee places or um you know they try to balance the flavor and make it like a, a good daily coffee that's not too out there but also like hopefully if it's a good coffee shop not too like you know darker or boring yeah as well yeah, no, I feel like we've come full circle, you know, to appreciate just like a regular coffee. <laughs> Will we ever appreciate a dark roast is the question, though. Probably not. I mean, Probably not. I, I just, I, mean, I don't like the taste. That's, that's what it's going to come down to. I feel like if I, if I appreciated the burnt earthiness <laughs> of that, which is genuinely, I guess, what people enjoy about that, yeah. but I just can't get there to enjoy like the, the burnt and like burnt on other things can taste good. You know, I can enjoy yeah. a, a steak that has a, a singe, you know, to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I can't get on board with a, with a fully burned bean. Yeah. Especially black too, you know? Yeah. I feel like if there's some notes that I, that uh, get closer to that end that I can appreciate, I think things that are grassy maybe, or that start to get into the earthy without being, you know, straight, this was shard. I can appreciate, but just nothing, nothing more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about Catch-22 and the author, Joseph Heller. This is kind of a unique book, I think, because we're jumping into, it's, it's actually more recent than I thought it was. I don't, I don't know what date I thought it was written. Honestly, didn't bothered to look it up before we we got it. Uh, I didn't know it was based on World War II, but I thought it was earlier than uh, it was written in 1961 or published in 1961. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and Heller lived until 1999 um, in the United States, which is probably one of our more recent authors so far. Yeah, probably. I mean, it's one of those books that I think people know of or have like heard it, or even people who aren't into literature know that term right but this is the book that coined the term but it's a book that i think a lot of people have heard of and maybe even seen but never read yeah i i did hear a few people say it's like one of the more essential books of the of the 20th century actually and i believe it both after reading it and understanding sort of the the writing style and maybe some of the philosophical underpinnings of it it makes complete sense for the time it was written yeah this Um, is a really good book it really like 
yeah, reading it was just a delight, you know, like there's some books and it's a fairly large book. There's some books that are truly just burdensome to open or you like just see it sitting there, you know, you like want to finish it, but you don't want to open it, you know, (laughs) and I never felt that way throughout the entirety of this like 400 ish page book. Um, I was, I, I just, I devoured it. Like I thought it was really enjoyable. No, it's, it's amazing. It does a good job of looping in historical events also. So obviously World War II being the prominent events in it. And this was inspired mostly by Heller's own life experience, which mm-hmm. is impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, he would later go on to teach at a bunch of universities, including Yale for a while. Um, but very much like the time he lived in, he didn't really think his works had any particular meaning. <laughs> or he didn't want anyone to glean a particular meaning from them. But I'm sure we'll have more to, <laughs> to say about about that and what message he might have been conveying yeah. through Catch-23. And I think what sticks out about this book, other than or compared to other World War II books, is that it is a satire of sorts. So everything that's being written about is there's a double meaning kind of to it, and um, it is intended to be humorous. And it's really just kind of dry and has like this like bitter element of humor throughout the whole thing. Um, there, it kind of borders on that type of humor that's kind of like. Uh, interested with the absurd and the absurdity and illogical nature of the reality that we see around us and almost like a way of maybe Joseph Heller coping with all these you know illogical things that he had experienced when he was um, at war himself I mean even the the term catch-22 as described from that definition it's like an illogical, unreasonable, or senseless situation that's just basically circular reasoning. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Um, it's a paradox of sorts that's typically intended to benefit the authority figure who is making the rule by maintaining the other person's submission to just some arbitrary rule. And so one example of this Catch-22 paradox is that um, You can only be discharged from the squadron if you are deemed crazy by the doctor. But if you go to the doctor and tell him you're crazy, that means you're not crazy. And if you're not crazy, that means you can go fly more missions. But if you're sane and you want to continue flying missions, then you're crazy. (laughs) So it's this endless circularity uh, to this paradox. And what's what's funny that... Joseph Heller does in his narration and the way that he writes is that he takes this idea of a circular reasoning catch 22 and he applies it in like throughout the book in the characters discussions and little plot lines too. And it just makes for a really like, it's just a really funny way that he plays with this main theme. That's the whole focus of the book and it is literally playing out in the characters. Yeah. And not only is it that the plot is driven by these catch 22s, these impossible unreasonable circular reasoning but it occurs in dialogue and descriptions of people like every two lines and it's so entertaining he'll be talking about someone and like right at the beginning of the book i forget which character he has many 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 characters so they tend to blend together um for me but you know he's talking about this guy who's like he was extremely well liked um and respectable and Everyone was sick of him after three minutes of talking to him, (laughs) you know? And it's like constantly these tensions and paradoxes in everything he says, but in a way that makes sense. 
I guess like that is is humorous in a way that you understand because it's sort of intuitive. Um, you know, he in that case, that example I just gave, you know, he was saying this guy was so nice that he was unlikable. <laughs> and that's an actual human response to someone who's like, this person is just too nice. Like, I cannot stand to be with them. So it's an accurate representation. Um, and that's really what he's trying to do with these constant uh, catch-22s. The plot line is kind of scattered throughout chronologically. And, and But even the plot itself isn't super complex. <laughs> like, I think in, in short, I think we could summarize it as that the main character, his name is Yosarian or Yosarian. He's a bombardier who's stationed in Italy during World War II. Um, and there are missions that they have to um, fly once they hit a certain mission quota, then they're told they're allowed to go home. Every time that he almost reaches it, then it keeps getting raised and raised and raised. So instead, the whole plot is him constantly just looking for ways out of the service, whether by trying to appear crazy, trying to just uh, fake an illness in the hospital and just avoid it altogether. Um, and that's most of the plot. His friends slowly begin to die in combat all around him, and he's like one of the only few left. Um, and he's just surrounded by this murder and death while himself is being constrained by meaningless tasks and paperwork and rules. Um, eventually, he the, the commanders do work... Um, a way for him to finally go home, but it would require him to compromise his beliefs and basically side with the people that he saw as enemies who were on his side. And um, by supporting the flight of other missions and perpetuating the very thing for other people that he was so afflicted by himself. So finally, he escapes um, by um, leaving um, where he is and going to basically run away to a neutral territory in Sweden. Yeah. And while that plot is straightforward, it's also convoluted. <laughs> if that makes any sense at all, it it's simple, but the timeline also jumps. Um, this is a similar experience to what are we read last month, um, with Faulkner and each sort of section has sometimes a different timeline, than the previous section of the book. You know what events are happening, but there's not always a clear lead up between those, <laughs> those events. Um, so it's, it is more straightforward. And I think this is a helpful point and maybe we'll compare this in our discussion section, but that it's, it might be more enjoyable because it's more mm. clear um, than, than Faulkner. And also, when we talk about Kafka, it's more clear than Kafka also. At least yeah. it was for and, me. And I think I was going to mention this prior, like before I started describing the plot, that I think that if like you don't really read the book to enjoy the plot itself, the reason that you enjoy the book is because in this simple plot, it's all about the different like misadventures that these characters get themselves into and like their different foibles. And it's just really funny. Um, I was talking with a friend about this. Uh, and I had to compare it to, it's like if Wes Anderson directed a World War II movie <laughs> is basically what this book is. There's all these funny, yeah. absurd little tangents and quirky characters. It's just a quirky book altogether. Yep. Um, but what's so interesting even in that is that then he will just randomly drop these super devastating 
and like at times like violent, yeah. like really earth shattering moments, like right into like out of left field and it just causes you to slow down. And, you know, that is kind of one of the things that drives, um, Yosarian at the end to, um, I guess like it, it, it causes his character to change a little bit. Yeah. I think that contrast is extremely well done in this book because it doesn't, the humor and the levity doesn't take away from how seriously he addresses war in the novel. And you leave this seeing clearly that the, the devastation and the like horror of war. Um, there's a few scenes, there's a, a, a few bombing run scenes that are extremely clearly depicted and terrifying, um, which is accurate of, of these bombing runs. And also he sees it with such clarity Um you know, part of the catch-22 is that, you know, all of these people that Yossarian doesn't know are trying to kill him, and he's trying to kill them, and they're complete strangers, and he has no idea who they are. And that's wild, but it also depicts very honestly um, war, I think, and how, you know, coming in, there's, like, this youthfulness and, like, oh, we're fighting for some greater cause or whatever, uh, and Heller really dismantles that and shows how war is horrific no matter what side you're on or what you're doing um he he does that somehow while also incorporating a ton of humor uh into this book which i think i've never seen done this well before i've never read anything like this in my life you know i've read war novels that showed the horrors uh and they were never this humorous (laughs) Dylan, tell me about some of the uh, the major characters. I think I mentioned there's about a million characters in this book. Not actually. There's just a lot of characters uh, to keep track of. But what are some of the major, or who are some of the major ones uh, we should know? One major character is major, 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 major. <laughs> <laughs> just a really quirky character who's one of Yossarian's fellow um, brothers-in-arms, I guess. Like when they get their new recruits on from day one. But his name is Major Major, Major. First name, middle name, last name. And then by mistake, like by mere chance, um, there's like an, a typist error, I guess. And one of the generals comes to bring him along with them. And he thinks he's a major because clearly his name would indicate he must be, but even though he's not. Um, and in order to save that, that general, to save himself from the embarrassment of making the mistake, he decides just to promote Major 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 to be a major in that moment. And so then from there on, he is promoted for no good reason to be major, 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 (laughs) which is just great. There's also Major DeCoverly, which is a redacted name. Um, It's just so secretive and, and, and you know, private that you don't even know his first name. It's just redacted in the book, which is pretty funny. Um, There's a chaplain who is an interesting, like, case study that I'm sure we'll talk about, who he's, like, he teeters between, like, losing his faith and being hopeful. He is, like... (laughs) the book starts off with the line, it was love at first sight. The first time Yasarian saw the chaplain, he fell madly in love with him. Uh, and he doesn't mean that literally, but it was just this chaplain plays a, sort of a major role somehow as a background character, but has a really sort of sad descent um, into moral compromise. And that's maybe a theme in this too, where all of these friends of um, Yasarian have major moral compromises as part of their character 
Um, so like Milo, for example, right, is like the scheming guy business oriented, right? Is that accurate? Um, he is sort of an allegory for corruptness, I think, to to Heller. And he plays off of Yasarian because it makes Yasarian look like he has this moral compass <laughs> in the end. It's it's a weird, uh weird dynamic, but I think Heller uses each character to sort of build out this point of view all around Yasarian. Uh it's a very unique way of of writing in characters. <laughs> Did you have any favorite moments from the book? Ooh, uh yeah. So one of my favorite moments is uh towards the end of the novel when Yasarian just suddenly comes to the realization at this moment in the book that feels more like a dream than reality or the maybe the <laughs> the allegory of the book deepens at towards the end and he just outright says he knows that catch 22 isn't real after <laughs> like 40 chapters of catch 22 being the major issue in the book and somehow heller catch 22's <laughs> catch 22 itself <laughs> it's like inception of catch 22 like you're inside of it and then even catch 22 is not real and that's the whole basis of the book absolutely wild it blows your mind when you get to that point um and i think that combined with that point when the officers finally say um you know you are allowed to go free all you have to do is endorse us <laughs> is a really 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 interesting moment uh, compromise yeah that to to compromise values and it it shines the spotlight on on Yasarian's motivations and what he's been striving for this whole time uh brilliantly done just a few of my favorite moments for sure what are some of your favorite moments still there were some funny uh, parts when Yosarian, I don't, I can't tell if it was him actually like going crazy or just pretending to, or just being absurd. I don't know. But, um, some of his like mannerisms were funny. At one point he is just described as he, he starts instead of marching for like forwards as one does when they march, he begins to just march backwards instead out of a fear that someone was always going to sneak up on him, <laughs> which is funny. Cause if you're marching backwards, you're still like, there's no difference. You just look dumb. Like someone could still be behind you. I, um, I, for some reason, what comes to mind immediately in that is that that scene from the office when Dwight is like, I never let anyone go in behind me through a door. <laughs> and then Jim just slaps him. <laughs> Yes. That is exactly what that feels like. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh. Um, he also, after, it actually is kind of an emotional part when he, uh, Snowden is a, like a new recruit who dies um, really tragically um, when on, on his first mission yep. with Yossarian. But after that, it leaves like this, you know, lasting impact on, on Yossarian. And so he just, um, I think he got the uh, Snowden's blood all over his uniform. So I think, I don't know if it's for the rest of the book, precisely or if it's just for a portion of the book but he's just naked and so he he like swears that he will not wear those clothes because he's so traumatized by it and he is just naked for this portion of the book and he even <laughs> receives a medal um naked and um he also at one point moves there's like a bomb line right it's like on a map uh, a string that is tying two points together yep. and he really doesn't want to fly this mission so at night he just goes and just moves it pins it up and moves yeah. it and then the entire squadron like the generals are like wait this place has already been taken <laughs> so you know i guess we don't have to do it anymore like they don't even second guess 
and it's just funny. Um, the last thing I'll share, because there's so many funny moments, is just that you mentioned the character Milo or Milo, um, the mess officer, who's basically he he works his way into this position of mess officer, and then gets into trading food and getting really, you know, um, really nice like fruits and and impressing people with them and <laughs> like schmoozing over the generals. Yep. Eventually, he's able to like borrow some planes to go fly to go trade for some fruit and stuff and one day he comes back with german planes <laughs> <laughs> yep but he's able to like you know like get in with the generals and they paint it over like and he creates his own like private enterprise yep right um and then it just his, his plotline continues to spiral and spiral then it, it eventually turns out that he's so beloved around the nation that like a couple towns have made him their mayor like Yossarian flies out with him and he is paraded in and there's like pictures of him on banners as this town's mayor and they're so happy he's there because he's helped their market for some type of like artichokes or something like that um but then it gets really twisted because there comes a time when there's um this surprise bomb raid by german planes and it catches everyone off guard like the, their you know squadron is being bombed by the enemy but then it turns out that it's actually Milo bombing his own people because of a trade agreement that he had with Egypt, I think. Yeah. And there's a funny moment where one of the generals, he like runs up to the top of the tower and he yells into the receiver to talk to the people who are flying the planes or something like that. And he's like, Milo, what are you doing up there? And then he just turns to the side and Milo's actually standing right next to him. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but then Milo gets away with it by explaining basically that, well, you're right. I, I was a traitor. I bombed my own people. That would mean that I would have to reimburse the government. But, you know, the government is the people, right? We the people. Therefore, why even pay the government if it's just going to give back to itself? And then everyone just accepts that um, and totally, like, forgets that he ever bombed his own people <laughs> for the sake of his private enterprise. Yeah. I forget if you mentioned this or not, or if it was maybe before we were recording, but he's almost this like idea of like this capitalist, mm -hmm. almost uh, other third party nation yeah. that's, that rises up and plays all the different nations during the war and is not on either side, but is just selfish and pushing himself forward and lying to everyone to get ahead for himself after the war by establishing this business. Yeah. And that's, I mean, in war that actually happens. Which is, hmm. so, like, there's nations that sell tons of weapons to other nations, right, who hmm. are benefiting from from a war effort. Hmm. I mean, including the United States. We're not, you know, uh, some moral leader there. And I think hmm. some people interpreted uh, that as a both a criticism of capitalism and later on a cap, uh, critique of communism in some ways, where hmm. Heller's just like, hmm. all of these organized systems are absurd because look yeah. it, what they're claiming to do they may not be doing and it's it's sort of a, a disaster on all sides so as we move on to our you know discussion and just kind of questions we had uh for catch 22 one of the things we've brought up a few times is just how much kafka is in this book and mm -hmm. even how much of the castle that we see in this book, we read it so long ago and it was so hard to read, but there's so much in Catch-22 that relates to Kafka and the castle was inspired maybe by Kafka's other works. And if you haven't listened to that episode, go do it. 
100%. Shameless plug. Chandler and I think it's hilarious. Somehow The Castle was like maybe one of our, I think maybe one of our least favorite books, but it is somehow like the most popular episode right now. (laughs) (laughs) Has the most views. It's really true. It's, and to be fair, it's a fascinating book. It's just not always enjoyable to read. So I wanted to just see what was your experience and maybe if you could rate Catch-22 in comparison to your experience with Kafka and the Castle. Yeah, I mean, they're certainly very similar. Um, They both play with this idea of absurdity. I think it's a lot more on the nose in like a comedic way by Joseph Heller, Um, whereas it's more like subliminal maybe with Franz Kafka. Um, And I feel like in Kafka, he really wants to drive home like the true despairing um, victimhood of the person whereas Joseph Heller he's like it, yeah it's there but he's like also making light of it you know and he wants yeah. to bring out the humor and he wants us to kind of all laugh together with him at how silly some of these things are the squadron is being made to do um, I think in order to challenge our preconceived notions of like like why are we doing the things that we're told to do you know, is there actually merit behind this arbitrary rule? Yeah. So it's something is, there's just something a little bit different, I think, Um, but they are certainly similar. Yeah. I, my experience was just that catch 22 was so much more enjoyable and I think it's because of the humor, but it's fascinating to me that apart from the humor, they're extremely similar. Yeah, you're right. And what is it about humor that makes, that level of, I don't know, of um, satire enjoyable, hmm. you know? And is yeah. that even, is that a good thing to enjoy? Like, I'd, I I was sort of uh, caught up or confused <laughs> by my enjoyment of Catch-22 because I think they're essentially more or less the same in their message <laughs> and that sort of everything is absurd. But I really liked one and, and didn't, necessarily enjoy reading the other yeah they get there different ways yeah and i think it is just the despairing point of view and i was thinking about maybe it's because catch 22 more approximates like our generations and maybe you know and whatever generation that is our our generation and gen z maybe have this sort of absurd humor about life a lot of times and i was thinking about there's a lot of memes on the internet about catch-22 situations that our generation feels like we're caught in, you know, or even younger generations too, where it's like, I, I, one that comes to mind is like the job hunt, maybe less in our generation now, but where it's like, okay, I need experience to get a job, but I need a job to get experience. You know, have you ever seen that like flow chart? That's a catch-22, right? It's like perfect example. And I don't, I feel like we are overall, this generation and younger ones have this like, whatever sort of attitude a lot of times towards those social um, issues or or sort of social systems where it's like, I'm caught in this absurd system and there's nothing I can do about it, but I'm going to make fun of it, you know, or I'm going to joke about (laughs) it. Which, yeah, you make a good point. It's like, is that the right way? I don't know. Yeah, I I don't know either. (laughs) Is that the right way to go about it? But But even like you mentioned the office as like kind of a a parallel (laughs) thing, but that is that not kind of some of the humor that we find in the office yeah but they're funny because they're so accurate sometimes like the office is a satire of small corporate life which anyone who's in that world knows that it's 
like 80% true. <laughs> like the, the number of things that happen that are just like absolute time wasters or like just make no sense or like, why am I doing this when you know it amounts to nothing in the end, you know? Um, and you can, you could guess that, but yet here you are having to do it <laughs> and there's no, no end goal. I just think it's uh, yeah, or I think of when the branch succeeds when there's a really poor manager. <laughs> yeah, right. And despite everything that's going wrong, it, it works out for them in the end. You know, it's I, I think Catch Twenty Two, maybe more than Kafka, better than Kafka, at least identifies with our generation in the sense of, um, yeah, in the sense of Catch Twenty Two and uh, absurdity. There's one scene where the absurdity is actually not funny and it's actually it, it's intended to make a really like aggravating and frustrating and despairing point um in one of the chapters at the end of the closer to the end of the novel he's going to go find his friend's fiance because his friend died and he's going to tell her the bad news of his death and he's really impacted by his friend's death so when he goes to find the fiance it's like his eyes are opened to all the evil in the world and it's nightmarish of him just like walking the streets of Rome at nighttime and seeing all these like corrupt things as if he as if they were he was blinded to them before and like seeing the death of his friend opens his eyes to the reality there's like people being like beaten in the streets like there's a dog that's getting uh, beaten I think um, it reaches its climax when he enters the place that he's staying with one of his other fellow brothers in arms Arfi and it turns out the Arfi abused and then killed one of the maids who was staying there and Yossarian is like what did you just do I can't why would you do this and then they start to hear the sirens blaring and he's like, good, like they're coming to arrest you, finally. And they come upstairs and the military police knock on the door. And then when they get in, they arrest Yossarian instead because he happened to go without leave. He wasn't able to take leave to go there. The absurdity in that scene is used to frustrate the reader and, and show the utter injustice in that moment. And so absurdity can be humorous, but then it also can show its, its true nature and injustice when evil occurs and is not punished. Yeah, I... Got a very Ecclesiastes vibe from that section about how, you know, how is it that the 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 unjust person, um, the the person who does wrong openly uh, and revels in it, is successful and has everything he needs, and yet the righteous is, um, you know, has nothing to show for all of their righteousness. Like why, how is that fair? Yeah, the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. Correct. And that's a, you know, a theme in the book also that maybe we'll, we'll get to uh, later on in our discussion, just about theodicy, right? And the problem of evil is something that Heller clearly was concerned with in this book. There's, you know, a whole conversation about it at one point. And, you know, what is the role of God in the midst of that absurdity? Do you think Heller offers a solution to absurdity in the world? Um, one of the things that seems to happen is he kind of champions this, I, I wanted to say individualism, I don't even know if that's the right word, but freedom from restraint or group identity, um, freedom from patriotism, from capitalism, from organized religion, with the chaplain, um, it, he really seems to want the reader, I think, at the end, 
to believe that the best thing Yasarian did was desert to become free of Catch-22. That's how I interpreted it, at least at the end. Do you think that's true? And is... Because that conflicts with what I said earlier on about how apparently he didn't want to convey anything by his writing, which is doubtful to me <laughs> in this book, because I think he does a good job of conveying a lot of things. And that was one thing that um, that stood out to me. Do you think that is the his solution to absurdity is like a, you write your own story? I think so. Kind of I, thing? Mean, I think that he frames it more in the victim finally leaving that circular reasoning of abuse and oppression in some sense. But it also, but the, th- the, the problem with that I, I mm. see is that by removing yourself from that situation, sure, you're free, but what, what are you, you're not doing anything to help everyone else, you know? And so is that really the right move? There's no kind of mm. um, like view of suffering well, or even like submitting to authority. And I even want to be careful with my words because we're not called to, you know, to submit to corrupt authorities per se, but we're also not, I don't think it's right to run from things. Yossarian is heralded and is just like an upfront, uh, he's, he's not a patriot at all. He's um, proud and he would tell you himself he's proud to only care about himself. Like he's just, he just doesn't want to fight the war. He could care less how it goes. He just wants to save himself. And that really is a selfish way of thinking. And the thing is, with his character arc, he develops over time when he witnesses these gruesome deaths. It help, it like causes him to finally see reality the right way and then like actually start to have compassion for other people. But then it, to me, it, maybe I'm you know, interpreting it wrongly, but it, then it's like, then why does he just dip out at the end, right? I thought he was so, I thought he became someone who was so caring about, yeah. you know, like even that example of him going to um, uh, his friends, his dead friend's fiance to, t- to try to tell her, like with, when he didn't even have leave he could take, he was breaking the rules to help this person. That It just doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't really add up to me. And so I, and we'll get to where I think we land on this in our gospel discussion. I think we would disagree that running from the problem is the issue. But then that leaves another question of like, okay, well then do you just perpetuate it by going along with the flow? You know, it's a very ethically complicated question. But what do you think? Do you yeah. think that he, what's the solution that you think Heller provides? I don't, I, I hadn't, thought too much of oppression if i'm honest it's sort of obvious now that you've mentioned it and maybe that's not the right word per se it's like well, no, individual but it is. oppression right not like a societal oppression really yeah but it's it's an oppressive system is the yeah. is yeah. i think what ultimately what he's running from right or or a series of oppressive systems that are all one worse than another um and i think that is sort of a reality of life and that's a pretty in some ways that's an accurate description like we're you know, I think of, you know, in America, you could say something like this American dream um, that we follow after. Right? It's like, okay, like you make more money to own more things to make more money. Like it, it, we're stuck in cycles and like you have to borrow this much money in order to accomplish this thing. But then you're stuck working to pay for what you bought. Like there's systems in place that feel, um, feel oppressive, you know, and these are things that I think you know, are being called out and have been for, for a while, but I don't know if the solution is not being part of them. (laughs) Like you were saying, like, I don't know if that's the end goal, but it it does feel, I think Heller 
you know, if he's anything, it, he does feel postmodern. Um, yeah. In that he is undoing these binary points of view on, oh, well, like, we're the good side in the war and they're the bad side, right? It's like, well, no, we're all strangers trying to kill each other and we don't even know each other. Um, that, I think he does a good job of that. And I think to the to the extent that we can, or maybe the extent that we can agree with him is that he's right in a lot of ways that we are sort of stuck in systems. I think just our approach of how do we address them might be different. And to be fair, maybe he isn't necessarily advocating that we leave the systems, um, but that's the the ultimate decision Yossarian makes in order to flee from them. But it feels it does not feel noble. But then again, I don't think he's trying to convey a stereotypically noble character. No, no, he's an anti-hero. Really, exactly. He's a coward. Really. He's a he's a proud coward. Even that is a paradox in and of itself, right? Yeah, like, and he's a proud coward in a tragedy. <laughs> like huh. it doesn't. Yeah. Like it's everything. Everyone around him dies. Like it's very Shakespearean <laughs> in that way. Like there's no good solution to to that end. And that is true. I think we would agree to an extent. You know, we just wouldn't agree. We wouldn't buy in wholeheartedly. But he accurately identifies something we feel as human beings. Um, which is that the world is absurd <laughs> and doesn't make any sense and is extremely frustrating a lot of the time. And you know what? When you were when you were just sharing that, it made me kind of realize another difference between him and Kafka's writing. Him and Kafka is that in Kafka's writings, like the trial in the castle, there's some hidden, veiled, unknown bureaucratic authority that you can never get to. Yeah. Whereas in this in this story it's kind of the opposite it's it's very clear who the corrupt bureaucrats are like it's not they're not necessarily veiled um yeah he like calls so, them out like yeah. there's a social commentary part on these specific groups mm-hmm. yeah but it, there's no mystery involved here no it's just <laughs> no. It's, it's blunt like and, and it's just yeah as kids that are going shipped off to war told by someone arbitrary that they're on the right side and everyone else is on the wrong side go bomb them you know but meanwhile these people it's these these bureaucrats like care more about taking pretty pictures of bomb patterns than what they're actually doing in bombing people right (laughs) you know yeah so and that's something that you don't you don't see the like the the oppressor in kafka's works is like almost the unknown Right. Whereas here, it's it's right in front of your face, and it is frustratingly stupid, <laughs> yeah. which is, is what I think drives Yossarian, um, you know, to be so desperate. But yeah, I mean, Heller almost, in I think in a, in a way that's not true, like, sh- kind of uplifts this desire for self um, preservation to be the honorable thing. Yeah, which I don't know is if I don't I don't think I agree with that. Yeah, and like a a, a system that Yasserian has decided for himself is the right hmm. the right way to go. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I don't. I, I, it's hard for me to imagine a world where that actually works out for him in the end. We don't have the rest of the book, but hey, I don't there's think, a sequel. 
I, you know, there is. I, I did read that. I didn't even know that that book existed until recently. But maybe that's the answer. We have to read the sequel <laughs> to find out. Well, in contrast to Yosarian's selfishness, Taylor and I, as Christians, we follow um, Jesus Christ, who himself did not seek to preserve his life. He did quite the opposite. And so I think that makes for an interesting contrast and, and lens through which we're able to read this this book. And, and we see, I think, very clearly a lot of the faults and errors with Yosarian and even some of the themes that Joseph Heller was maybe trying to get across. What are some like applications for people who read this book who are believers in Christ? How should the gospel inform the way that they read it? Yeah, well, the first thing, I, like I was just saying, you know, a couple minutes ago, there's a good appreciation. And I think the story of redemption that we see in the Bible is compatible in some ways with what we read um, in this book, in that it accurately depicts um, human, uh, you know, desires and the human experience. And that's really, you know, why we did this podcast in the first place. Yeah, that like... Sometimes we're not good at it at as Christians as in describing accurately the human experience, um, and sometimes we need fiction to do that for us. <laughs> and this I think is a good example where the slow, absurd crawl towards death while being caught in paradox paradoxes in this catch twenty two is I think what we would just call like the chaos of sin. Um, I think absurdity is just another side of what we would call the results of the fall right and i think when we say it when we talk about the fall we we're you know making a blanket statement but absurdity is like focusing in on one part of of that multifaceted way that our world is just broken um and the bible confirms all of that that we live in a broken world and you know I think the Old Testament probably construes it as chaos rather than absurdity, but I think those can go hand in hand. Um, So the Bible already has this narrative that death is a reality of human life, that absurdity is a reality of human life that's completely outside of our control. Like something that we dread and that we're moving towards, you know, step by step. And uh, it's just navigating this world that's completely broken. Um, but I think the gospel application, in contrast to what we read in Catch-22, is that in Christ, who dies and resurrects as this centerpiece of Christian theology and Christian faith, is the only way to es- escape the absurd spiral into death. Um, that in his resurrection, he breaks once and for all that horrible pattern in humanity. Um and if that is a reliable historical fact that we place, you know, our, our faith in as Christians, then it completely breaks this narrative of absurdity. Um, I think that is a beautiful image. And again, I think we, we run into this with a lot of stories where, you know, while parts of it match up <laughs> with our worldview, we think they're just ultimately slightly incomplete, right? It, it's missing a redemption, Um Yasserian doesn't really have a redemption story and there's not a ton of hope, uh, even if it, you know, pokes fun at 
absurdity. There's not a, a moment of, of redemption. Um, and that's what, you know, as Christians, we would cling to as the, as the ultimate key to this absurd puzzle that we live in. And even prior to the fall, we see that, you know, God himself as creator is the creator of logic and reason and order and even in the creation itself in the first yeah. six days of the, of the seven. And like we see the first three, you know, he sets apart dominions or places for then the next subsequent days to fill those things. And he's providing structure and order. And so, yes, I, I think the, the, even the idea, the concept of absurdity is such an interesting result of the fall that we don't often see just the decay of logic around us and and the way that we all know that life works in ways Mm -hmm. that are not always just unjust, but even just irrational and frustrating, you know, and, and those are highlighted really well in even just the experience of reading this book, not even in the plot line, but in his writing style, there's times that I think, you know, he intends to frustrate the reader a little bit. Like he hones in on very weirdly nuanced parts of a character's personality or something and just like goes down rabbit trails like that. And there's a distinct lack of order or structure or reason as to why he's spending so much time on this, you know? And I think that's just a reflection of that bigger absurdity that we all live in. And God puts that absurdity back into order for us and he reorients our lives um, by when he reverses the curse and and, yeah. and we follow Christ in our spiritual resurrection and, and one day our, our physical bodies as well um, he will I think utterly reverse all the absurdity and irrationality there's there's not going to be any illogical circular reasonings in redemption yeah one of the things we see in the the wisdom literature again which are themes that are picked up uh, in in both Catch-22 and these biblical authors that, you know, lived thousands of years ago. But one of the things that they recognized was that um, the, the way to live in the world is how God orders the world. Um, so they see patterns of, of order, even in just practical living, and they say that those are things that God has given. His design. Yeah, his, his wisdom, literally personified, right? And they trace that thread and, you know, again, as Christians, we believe that ultimately comes to fruition in Christ, right? Who, who is, who is the, the wisdom of God personified um, for, for human beings. And uh, that frees us. Is that Proverbs 8? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in the, in the themes, and I was thinking of all of Proverbs, but yeah, that, that consistency of like, here's how you live in this world of chaos. Here's how you break maybe those cycles that make it just feel like, what is the point? You know, because I think ultimately that attitude leads to despair. Um, I think it can easily turn into a nihilism that's pretty dark. Um, and we might have seen little glimpses of that um, in in Heller's writing. Yeah, there's um, a lot of deficiencies that Yossarian has. The way that he views life is just for his own pleasure. I mean, even I, I touched on it, but one place that um, events take, you know, take place in this novel is um, in Rome where all the men go on their, to like retreat 
from war and they basically just spent their money on prostitutes and like self-indulgence um and it's you know it's in a sickening kind of way made made light of you know and the way that they that Yossarian, all he wants to do is preserve his life like to do what you know (laughs) if he could he would just live a debauched life you know away in sweden and that's what he probably presumably does um that's a deficient view of what life is and and what god designed you know that that is misusing the the creation the good gifts that god's given to us and rejecting his design for good living you know um and even his view of um I'd suggest like responsibility yeah. and integrity. Like there's a balanced view. And I don't mean to say that he should have submitted to a corrupt authority entirely, but he, he has no sense of integrity or dignity in doing what he's asked to do or honoring someone who's asking him to do it. Um, I think he's quick to shirk responsibility and not think of creative ways of like, <laughs> you know, of rightly addressing the situation. Again, as Christians, if we're caught in a catch-22 situation, I don't think the answer for us is to just leave it altogether. You know, I think there has to be another way of working out the solution. Um, I don't always know what that is. (laughs) But it reminds me of, I think there's a Charles Spurgeon quote where he says, like, between the lesser of two evils, do neither. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Yep. So again, that's a case by case type thing, but that's the mentality I think that like we ought to uphold. There's a quote I wanted to read and just see, I don't know if this has any bearing on what Heller or maybe um, Yossarian, how Yossarian viewed uh, Christianity or Jesus specifically. Um, And it, it shows up. It's a, it's just a, maybe a helpful touch point for us, but it's in the middle of that scene in Rome where he's surrounded by it like murder and people mm-hmm. being beaten. It's just a terrible mm-hmm. dark scene. Yeah. It says Yasarian quickened his pace to get away, almost ran. The night was filled with horrors and he thought he knew how Christ must have felt as he walked through the world, like a psychiatrist through a ward full of nuts, like a victim through a prison full of thieves. What a welcome sight a leper must have been. And then he keeps going. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on the meaning of that? I've been thinking about it a lot. I, I think in at least in some sense, it's probably a misguided <laughs> attribution mm-hmm. that Christ mm-hmm. viewed the people in the world as a bunch of just like insane pick people, and he was just a victim of them. Um because we know that he came into the world to save sinners. (laughs) Like that was his whole purpose. So he was not surprised by any of that, but maybe at the same time that reveals more about what Yossarian was feeling um, in terms of like, he's just trapped in this world (laughs) and like, he's the, he's the clear voice of reason or something in this broken, broken place. Yeah. Well, that's, what's wrong with that statement is that, the reality of Christ's <laughs> nature among the world when he was here in his earthly ministry was actually that. Like he was the only person who was like sane among all the crazy <laughs> people or, and, and, you know, to put it in biblical terms, like he was the only perfect man. Yeah. Everyone else is imperfect. Yeah, yeah, and he yeah. was the only righteous man. Everyone else was wicked and is apart from him. But what's different is that 
Oppositely, he gravitates towards the sinners and sufferers of this world. He enters the world because of that reason. You know, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, he says. And that's the very difference is that, you know, it's true, actually, what Yosirin's saying. But it's also the opposite in that that's not what Jesus thinks. Yeah. You know, Jesus is merciful and gracious and comes, like you said, to save. And we don't merit being saved by him. We should continue on in our own suffering and reap the wages of sin. But instead, Christ has stepped into that and into our mess as the Holy One, stepped into a crowd of lepers like us and chose to save us and make us clean and reverse that curse. Yeah. So good. Um, there were a few other times that the gospel and Christianity was touched upon, and namely with the chaplain. Mm. There's one scene where he sits down with Captain Cathcart, who is the, I think, the like main commander who is keeps raising the mission number. And Cathcart invites him to say a prayer to like encourage the men i think at some rally or like kind of have like a prayer rally or something like that um to encourage their their spirits but happens to want nothing to do (laughs) with um the true god at all um i forget exactly what he says but he's like um i don't want anything about that shadow of death stuff or um (laughs) he's talking about psalm 23 yeah and, uh, and and the chaplain's like, oh, well, those are all the like passages that I would have read. Things about like, you know, um, like God guiding us in suffering and all these things. And he's like, no, 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 I don't want to hear any of that. He wants to like put a bandaid over it. And instead, like, he's like, can't you just pray for a better um, bomb pattern? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or pray for, you know, these men to kill the other men better. And then the, the chaplain says something like, oh, well, if you wanted to pray those things, then you, well, you wouldn't even really need me to do that. And then he's like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. I guess we don't. And so basically what he's saying, though, or what's happening is that he's just, he wants, he likes the idea of God and religion to encourage the men, but he doesn't actually want God. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't understand God. And, and he wants to manipulate and use that thin veil of religion for his own, um, you know, earthly means, basically, and, and twists that and has no true understanding of the gospel. Yeah. And And beyond that, even the chaplain himself, like, I don't, it, there, you don't really get a sense of what he believes about the gospel and God, but um, you do get the idea that at least in practice, he's struggling. You know, if he is a, a, a believer, he's a struggling saint. And um, the, his view of God just isn't big enough to give him hope or encouragement. He doesn't seem to have a good understanding of why he believes what he does. And so when he's confronted with doubts and questions and people that confront him and um, in some senses even persecute him needlessly at times, he caves in and, and it's, you know, it's almost as if he doesn't really have a gospel or a God that he can lean on, which is really sad to see, you know, like he's the God that we have is the God of all comfort. Yeah, And he empowers us to live in this world despite all of that. And so I feel disheartened that the chaplain may have never truly tasted and seen the goodness of God's glory. Yeah, there's, I think a lot of the characters just show deficient, <laughs> like, faith. But 
at times I think Heller almost plays on it where he's poking fun at their incomplete views of, of God. There's this moment where, um, Yasserian and, uh, Lieutenant Schleischkoff's wife mm-hmm. have this argument about God's existence. And oh, it turns yeah. out that neither yeah. of them believe in God, but they spend <laughs> this entire discussion. It's like two atheists who are de- debating about the character mm-hmm. of God that they don't believe in, um, which in itself mm-hmm. is one of those paradoxes, uh, in the book. But he makes them look absurd too. <laughs> like it just adds mm-hmm. to that that incompleteness. But I think you're right that you know ultimately um, we would say that there's a better there's a better view <laughs> there's a more complete view of of God and and who He is. And um, you know, armed with that, I think coming to this book, you can uh, really appreciate <laughs> the absurdity and also feel a sense um, of of real redemption for the absurdity that we face as individuals. Yeah, all in all, it was a really enjoyable read. It was a book that I would certainly recommend to all the listeners. Maybe like one of the more accessible books that we've read so far on the podcast too. It was, I think, fairly simple to read. Yeah, I would agree with you there. I think it was, the chapters were shorter um, and just easy to read compared to some of the more uh, philosophical books and dense books we've read in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the next book that we're going to be reading as well is similar. Is it? <laughs> well, the theme of the next book is a little bit similar, right? Sure. It's another work about war itself. Yeah, so we're going to be reading The Art of War uh, by Sun Tzu. Um, and I'm very excited about it. Uh, it's complete diversion from our typical uh, run-of-the-mill classics. We tend to stick with classics in the Western tradition, and this is far outside of that. And arguably, it's not really a novel uh, because it's a military treatise, so it's it's definitely a departure from the standard. But we are interested in, in diving into sort of the philosophical backing, I think, of of those more literal uh, explanations of war from that time in uh, Chinese history. Mm-hmm. Even if it's not necessarily a novel per se, it's still, I think, worth reading and discussing on the podcast because of just how important of a classic work it is. And again, another like ancient <laughs> classic. <laughs> We've been reading so many modern classics recently, it seems, that we need to you know, go back a couple thousand years yeah it's good to to have a contrast it's it's like when we did uh the odyssey right well is it a thousand do you know when that book is written um i think uh sun tzu himself was supposed to have lived in like uh 500 bc range or something oh yeah like that. Okay. so all yeah right. we we're talking yes. we're talking old all right great well thanks for listening we'll see you next time